say was this morning, uh, Aaron was talking about Abraham and uh, the faith of Abraham, and uh, he was talking about faith and action. And so I guess my disclaimer this morning, uh, we're going to be in Acts, uh, uh, as a lot of times happens with me because of my personality. I'm going to be very, in, I'm going to be action-oriented, uh, but I don't want you to, I don't want to, my disclaimer is that doesn't mean that I don't think that God's in control of all this. I'm going to put the providence aside for a minute. God's in control, but he works through us. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning is, um, or I hope you're going to see in the message. So where am I starting? What is the ministry of the church? If I'm going to title my sermon, that's it. What is the ministry of the church? So I want you to try to keep that in mind as we go through this. Uh, and even that question may be a little broad for you. Maybe um, it may, I, I know you're all, your, your brains are probably all going in different directions. What, where are we going? What is the ministry of the church? Well, um, maybe we break it down a little bit. It might help. What do I mean by ministry? Uh, the New Bible Dictionary defines ministry as the religious service of the whole congregation. The service of the whole congregation. So now do you see my disclaimer about the do's and the don'ts? Because basically it is what ministry is, what does the church do? So now we know it's the do's of the church. So what is the church? Am I talking about the church local? Am I talking about the church universal? Uh, All believers? Well, since we know that we are all part of the church universal, the church uh, local is part of that, all one package, Uh, we can say the responsibilities of both are very closely related. So this morning what I want to try to do is drill down to the the church local, but specifically what we're supposed to be doing here at Grace Fellowship. But I can't leave that broad subject uh, untouched. Uh, You guys are all familiar with Matthew 28, the Great Commission in 19 and 20. Christ gives us that overarching duty for all believers. In the Great Commission, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So we've answered the question, haven't we? What's the ministry of the church? Go, baptize, make disciples. Short sermon. Y'all are out early, right? Um Last week, and this just, it's, it's amazing to me how providential God is. What did we talk about last week? What did Weathers talk about from the pulpit last week? Communion and baptism. He talked about baptism. And so I'm not going to spend a great deal of time talking about that. But uh, in my research, I came across this quote from, or this uh, summary from R.C. Sproul. And he described Acts 2, which is where we're going to be this morning, uh, in this particular passage, as a summary of the essential elements needed in Christian discipleship. You know, that's, those are pretty strong words. If you're going to say there's a passage that can summarize what we're supposed to do as a church, uh, if making disciples is one of the two things that Christ has called them to do, the essential elements in making disciples, if we could get a summary of that, might be something that we could benefit from. So that's where we're going to spend some time this morning. Uh, But before we dive into the passage, just a little bit of background so you'll kind of know where we're at, so we're not taking things out of context. Um, Acts, the overall book, is really a book of transitions. If you study the book and read through the book, you'll see that there's many transitions in there. We see the transition from the ministry of Jesus uh, 
to the ministry of the apostles. You see the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. You see a transition uh, of Israel as God's witness nation to the church of God as God's witness people. And Acts really depicts the uh, practical outworking of what we're supposed to do as a church. What is the outworking of the life of the church as we become those witnesses as God's people? So that's kind of where I want to spend some time. Background-wise, in chapter 2, just in verse 1 and a few verses following, you'll see that it says that um, uh, they were all assembled, they were all together for the day of Pentecost had come, and they were all together in one place. Uh, Pentecost, just briefly, because I don't want the sermon to be about Pentecost, Pentecost was one of the three feasts that the Jewish nation observed, and they came together, they uh, celebrated, they sacrificed, and they celebrated a feast together. And they came from all over. It said that they were all together. Look down in verse 9. I just want you to get a grip of all the people that they're talking about coming together. Then verse 9 it says, The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, uh, there were folks from the residents of, uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Jews and proselytes alike. That's a bunch of different ethnic and different people groups that are together. These people are all assembled. So I kind of wanted you to know who was there, who was listening to what was being said. It was a cross-section of the people. And then as you continue through the first part of the chapter, you get a brief discussion about the sobriety of those that were presenting. Uh, A little tongue-in-cheek there. Uh, It's amazing that the apostles are standing up and preaching. And because they are speaking in tongues, they have to justify that they're not drunk. Uh, That's probably for another uh, day. I told uh, Aaron what I was teaching on today. And he said, so you're going to talk about uh, speaking in tongues? No, that's not what I'm going to talk about. But... Uh, they did have the apostles did have to justify uh, what they were doing uh, and how they were doing it, uh, and that they were sober. And then that kind of brings us to our passage. So you got all these people together; they're there for a celebration for Pentecost, a, a Jewish feast, and uh, the apostles are speaking in tongues. They're accused of uh, being drunk, and uh, Peter gives a sermon. And in that sermon, God saves 3,000 souls. 3,000 people are saved. Their lives are changed. Among this group of people, 3,000 are saved. And that kind of brings us to our passage. And it's in this passage we're going to see, hopefully, what our church is supposed to be. So look with me in Acts uh, 2, and we'll look at 42 through 47. And you might want to leave your uh, Bibles open there. Hopefully, uh, if all goes well, we're going to kind of use this as our outline, some key words there in the passage. So starting in 42, it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one another, continuing with one mind in the temple 
and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So 3,000 were saved, and the Lord continued to add to their number. So what I, as I said, I kind of want to use this as an outline. I want to pick some uh, essentials, and really they're out of that first verse. Uh, some essentials uh, to the essential elements to Christian, to what our church is supposed to be doing. What is the ministry of our church? What are the essential elements to the ministry of our church? So the first one we're going to put look on there is teaching. Uh, most of these early believers were Jewish, I told you, and they had a working knowledge of the Old Testament. You know, they regularly spent time in the temple. Uh, obviously, they were uh, uh, devoted. They made a trip to come and celebrate a feast together. They spent time in the temple, and even, uh, you'll notice even later in the passage, he's talking about even after Pentecost, even after these 3,000 were saved, they still spent time in the temple. So they were not unaware of what the... Uh, uh, Old Testament said, but yet the apostles were preaching to them Christ. If you go and spend any time in the passage uh, where you, you dive into Peter's sermon just prior to where we're at here, that's what Peter was talking about, Christ. They spent time uh, teaching and preaching Christ. And so the, these new converts or these, this early church was devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and learning about Christ. One of our fundamental beliefs here at Grace is uh, that the Scripture is central, that um, we believe in Scripture alone. And it's the living Word of God. Uh, and although its content is inexhaustible, we do believe that we are able and should teach Christ regularly. I know that doesn't come any surprise to you, but it is an essential element and it is one of the things that we should minister, both as a church, so you get it from the pulpit, and it also should be part of your ministry. Because just as we are part, uh, as just as we are part of the church universal, Grace Fellowship, you are also a part of Grace Fellowship. So I know that all of you uh, would be very uncomfortable saying that you were a preacher, right? But we are responsible to teach Christ. Second essential, fellowship. Uh, if I passed out a questionnaire to you all and asked you to define fellowship, we probably would all would have uh, different but similar answers. Uh, spending time with one another, enjoying each other's company, enjoying a friendship, camaraderie among people, camaraderie among people with similar interests. And in our case, we usually tie it to fellowship around people that have a similar belief in Christ. Uh, and that's, that, that would be a good uh, definition. And if you look in verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had things in common. Sounds like fellowship, right? Very much like fellowship. That's certainly a big part of fellowship. But I want to take this fellowship thing just a little bit deeper. Uh, 45, in verse 45 it says, And they began selling their property and possessions... And we're sharing them with all. Now that sounds like communal living, doesn't it? Sounds like uh, go to work, get up, make your money, bring your money back, put it in the pot, and let's distribute it evenly among the group. That's not what I'm preaching here, but that's what you can get there. But look at the back part of the verse. 
as anyone might have need. They sold their property and their possessions and shared them as they had need. It doesn't say they came back and dispersed it evenly. When someone had a need, that need was met. And I didn't say wants, I said needs, but the need was met. So I have a question for you. How'd they know what they needed? Right? How'd they know what they needed? Hold on to that thought. Let's dig a little deeper. The third element I want to talk about is breaking of bread. This term, breaking of bread, can carry a couple of different meanings. Uh, One, and often it specifically is referring to the Lord's Supper, observance of the Lord's Supper, what we would call communion. Uh, The other uh, way that you might take this is what we might take more in common language today. We might say you break bread together, actually taking meals together with one another. And I think because of what, uh, if you look at the content of the whole package, I think that when he says breaking bread, the breaking of bread, we can take both here. Uh, And the reason I can feel secure about that is because in in this day, in the Jewish day, communion wasn't quite like it was now. You know, it's hard for us to think about communion as a part of a regular meal because we do communion at the worship service and there's not usually a meal tied to it. But in this day, in their culture, a lot of times communion was something they did. It was set apart, but it was something that was maybe at the end of a meal, where they observed communion at the end of a meal. So there wasn't this distinction that we have today. Uh, and furthermore, if I, uh, if I want to try to remove the distinction further, look down in uh, 46. And the back half, they were continuing with one another and continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and taking their meals together. So I think you've got both elements here. You've got the communion, but you've also got the breaking of bread from house to house and spending time with one another. Um, you know, in our world, that might be a foreign concept, uh, stopping and taking time to eat meals together. You know, we live in a pretty fast-paced world. Um, you don't, in the hustle and bustle, I mean, even if you're by yourself and you can eat as fastly, fast as possible and you're on the road like I am a great deal, I have to force myself to stop and go sit down and eat as opposed to getting something to eat in the car, right? And doesn't that kind of translate into our families? Don't we do the same thing? Um, I hope more of you are better at it than we are as a family, but we don't sit down as a family and eat together very often. And... I'm not trying to indict because of that, but I want to ask you a question. What normally happens when a group of people, whether it's two or 20, sit down at a table together and eat? Don't we get to know each other better? Don't we converse? Don't we fellowship? Don't we enjoy one another's company? You know, really, uh, it's kind of sad, but... Uh, our the the speed with which our lives go is really detrimental. Uh, think about what happens in that conversations when you're sitting around the table. You know, you start kind of with a superficial conversation. Hey, hello, how are you? How's the weather? And then over time, whether it's that time or the next time that you're together, those felt that conversation gets deeper, doesn't it? You start talking about things that are more personal, and what's going on there. Our fellowship is growing, aren't we? We're, we're learning more about each other and we're getting uh, 
to know each other's needs, aren't we? The more we get to know each other, we get to know each other's needs. So this is the only way um, the uh, modern church could know what the needs, I mean, not the modern, but this church in Acts could know what the needs of their fellow, fellow members were needed. What the needs of their fellow members were is they had to talk to one another. They had to fellowship with one another. I'm not going to bash Facebook and all that, but one of the things that we lose when we're not face-to-face to one another is we don't get involved with one another. Those things have a purpose and they have a good uh, place in our lives. But when we don't sit with one another and engage with one another and invest our time with one another, there's no way we can know what the other one needs. Just as a sidebar, when's the last time you had to buy a gift for somebody and you had no clue what they wanted or what they needed? Uh, really, that's an indictment on us because we don't spend enough time invested in the other. My wife would say that's an indictment on me because I don't pay attention when she's telling me, but that's a story. That's probably a story for another sermon. So am I saying that eating together is this magic potion? All we've got to do is eat together, and then our fellowship among each other will grow? Not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it offers the opportunity. And it's interesting that it's one of the key things that are mentioned here in Acts that Luke chose to tell us about that was going on in this early church. So time is our biggest deterrent. So my challenge on this one piece is to think about how you want to invest your time on this one element. Is it worth your time to spend it invested in growing your fellowship with whomever, your family members, your immediate inner circle, or the folks that are sitting in this pew, these pews with you, or maybe the folks that are in the pews that you don't know? Uh, remember our question, what is the ministry of the church? It's difficult to share with them all as anyone might have need if we don't have a clue what those needs are. Fourth essential, prayer. Apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's obviously no mistake here. I don't think anybody would debate this. We must pray individually, and we must pray with our fellowship of believers because prayer affects our lives. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father is improved through prayer. We give Him glory. We give Him honor. We give Him praise through our prayer. Our understanding of Him, His kingdom, and His will for our lives is found through prayer. It's through Scripture. It's through study. But we really take ownership of it through prayer. Our understanding of who we are is changed through prayer. Uh, Through prayer, we ask for forgiveness of sins. And I intentionally put this one last. It's through prayer that our, our petitions are heard for our needs and our wants. But it is through prayer that that happens. We ask for his oversight for us physically and spiritually. Um, I know you know this. Prayer is powerful. I just don't know that we act on it as if it is. Uh, Prayer can change lives. We're told in Scripture, prayer can literally move mountains. I don't know that I approach prayer with that kind of confidence. I don't know if others see me approach prayer with that kind of confidence. 
And if prayer is one of the key elements of ministry, I don't know that I give it that level of importance in my life. Sure, it's easy whenever I need something, I'm driven to my knees, right? That's easy. I just don't know that I see it as that important when I'm not in the need of something. Do you think of prayer like that? Is that the way you think of prayer? Or is it something less than that? Something we do, something we need to teach our kids, something we do uh, at the mealtime? And all those things are right. I'm not saying they're wrong. But do we minimalize prayer in our lives? Look back at the beginning of 42. I want to go back and pick up one essential. And it's not so much the act, but the attitude. And this is sometimes easily ran past when you read the passage. Because we get so focused on the do's that we don't see the how. They were continually devoting themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Continually devoting themselves. Webster gives several synonyms for devotion or devoted. They're committed, dedicated, or to be set on an objective. So if I said, are you devoted to something, what would you fill in the blank with? And to further emphasize where he's going here, Luke tells us that they were continually devoted. If devotion was not a strong enough word. So when something is continual, when does it stop? Doesn't, does it? Continually devoted. Uh, These believers were dedicated to these activities and they were ongoing in their lives. They were continually devoted to teaching. They were continually devoted to fellowship. They were continually devoted to the breaking of bread. They were continually devoted to prayer. Uh, I know that defining these words may be kind of Elementary, but think of the point that Luke was making about the attitude of how these early believers went about ministering in these four areas. Think about what that says about their attitude. Continually devoted. I have a tough time wrapping my head around that. Uh, Tommy read a passage this morning that's on the front of your Uh, bulletins. I want to read it again. Paul was talking to Philippians and he was talking to them about their humility. But I think it ties in well to this devotion, this continual devotion. Uh, You guys read along silently as I read it. I want you to look at how we are to be devoted to one another. Do nothing from selfishness or from empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. That's strong devotion. Do not merely look out for your own own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. This is the indicting part. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to have the attitude in us that Christ had. That's overwhelming when now he's going to tell you what that attitude was. That though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself out of that existence and that form, taking the form of a bondservant, the form of a slave, the form of a man, being made in the likeness of men, found in the appearance as a man, humbled himself, 
becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself to take the form of a slave, being made a man, and became obedient to the point of death. I know that may be a little off the Richter scale for you and for me, that I'm going to be devoted continually to the point of death for those that are around me. That's probably hard to swallow. But is it so hard to say I'm going to invest a portion of my life in others? Is it so hard to say that I'm going to have at least this much of what Christ had as I look toward others, as I minister to others? Uh, I purposely left this point to the end because I wanted you to look back at those four previous elements and I wanted you to apply this level of devotion to those elements. Uh, it kind of raises the bar both in consistency as well as in the resolve with how we go about these. So think through it like this. As a, as a Christian, you're continually devoted yourself to learning about Christ. You're continually devoting yourself to learning about Christ. We are to be continually devoting ourselves to the fellowship with other, other believers. Think of that level of devotion. I don't know that I apply that in trying to fellowship with other believers. Are you continually devoting yourself to breaking of bread with other believers and investing time in them? Are you continually devoted to prayer, both individually and corporately? Did you notice that uh, when Luke was writing these, these instructions, and even when I was going back through them, that all of them were the were that none of them, excuse me, were from the point of view of the recipient. They were from the point of view of the person giving them. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were learning. They were voting to fellowship. They were breaking bread. They were praying. Not the other way around. So it's not... I'm not in the position, it's my responsibility to learn. It's not others' responsibility to teach me. It's my responsibility to fellowship. It's not my, I'm not supposed to sit at home and wait on someone to call me to go do something. We should break bread from house to house. I should initiate that. Not say, well, I can't fellowship because nobody's called me. Nobody's asked me to come eat at their house or go out to eat. I should pray. I should just not sit and listen to others pray. We shouldn't take the passive approach to any of these. We should take the active approach. So back to my question. What is the ministry of the church? We are to continually devote ourselves to learning God's word, to fellowship, to breaking bread, to taking meals together, and to prayer. And if we do that... It is possible that we see what happened in Acts happen in our church's life, happen in our individual lives, happen in the church corporate. So let's pray.